Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we all appreciate a beautiful sunset. People will travel for kilometers to see one, but new research shows that they actually may be a great way to improve our mental health and well-being. We dig into the research behind that claim. Is Toronto the friendliest city in the world? It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, it's not an unfriendly place, but a new community spirit index ranks it right on top, tied with Sydney, Australia for first place. Montreal was sixth. So what separated Toronto from the pack? We find out. As U.S. President Joe Biden announces his bid for a second term, his age is once again a topic of conversation and perhaps debate. He will be nearly 82 if he wins, 86 if he finishes a second term. But a gerontologist tells me that not only is he by no means too old for the job, he also contradicts the long-held view that being president ages you faster than other jobs. But first, there has been some high drama today in the Canadian business world, specifically in mining, as giant tech resources appeared to move closer to being the subject of a hostile takeover by Swiss conglomerate Glencore, a move opposed not only by the BC-based company's board, but one that's also raising red flags for the Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland and BC's Premier David Eby. Why is it such a big deal? We find out. Well, uh, let's start in Vancouver, a city that was not included in that list. Actually, I'll cross one off that list for you because it wasn't included in the 53 cities they looked into. But uh, there was some high drama unfolding today in Vancouver in Canada's mining sector with the country's largest diversified mining company cancelling a key shareholder vote today. For months now, Tech Resources, one of BC's biggest mining companies, has been preparing a proposal to split into separate businesses. One would be dedicated to metals, the other to thermal coal or steel-making coal. There are lots of reasons for this. One of them is, is ESG stuff, is environmental, social, and governance stuff. A lot of big investors, big pension funds, and so on are really pushing for better ESG, and uh, your, your coal business is not a good part of that. So in this way, if you split these two companies... That allows tech to to focus a little bit on having these two separate things and you can kind of cleave off the part of your business that big investors aren't much happy with these days. But early today, the company said it would not go ahead with the vote just hours before it was due to take place at their annual general meeting, looking for another solution instead under the previous plan. Uh, the coal business would have to have had to pay about 90% of its cash flow back into the metals business for about a decade. So uh, this was not necessarily very popular. There's a bigger story going on in the background here, though. But first, here's tech CEO Jonathan Price today. I can't speak on behalf of any of our individual shareholders in, in this process. As you know, we, we uh, in tracking the vote, realized that we weren't going to achieve the, the 66 and two-thirds percent supermajority required for approval here. And at that point, it was our decision to withdraw the vote. Right. So it wasn't going to happen, so they withdrew it. What's happening in the background here is massive Swiss conglomerate Glencore is circling around circling around perhaps with a hostile bid, but certainly with a bid for tech. Um, now, the CEO says he's standing by his assertion that the takeover offer by Glencore remains for the company a non-starter. The focus of tech, as we've said today, is to figure out how we can undertake a simpler separation of the businesses. We still believe there's great value to be had from separating steel-making coal to base metals, and we can unlock the full potential, in particular, of that base metals growth portfolio. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, what that means essentially again is 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 by cleaving off these two separate businesses, uh, specifically the thermal coal business, it sort of guards the rest of the business uh, against a lot of these pressures that are coming from investors these days. Why does this matter? Tech employs upwards of ten thousand people, many of whom work in mines and smelting operations near the BC Alberta border, and there are big concerns from politicians as well. The finance minister, Christian Freeland, was talking about this earlier this week. David Eby, the premier of BC, is concerned about a takeover by a foreign company of tech. Well, joining us with more on this is Niall McGee. He's mining reporter with the Globe and Mail. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. This one's been really interesting to watch because it's complicated, right? For, for If you're just sort of diving in and out of it, it's, it's, it, there's a lot going on here. Uh, but just with this shareholder proposal today, what happened? They didn't, I mean, they proposed this split. Uh, there were some things about it. I was mentioning earlier that 90% cash flow from the, uh, from, the, from the coal operation into the metals wasn't popular. But there was a lot going on in the background here today. Yeah, absolutely. There, there has been a lot going on in the background. And it, it is difficult uh, to keep track of it. But yeah, essentially, as you mapped out in your intro, uh, Tech currently is sort of one big mining company that has both metals mines and metallurgical coal. So that's coal used in steel making. Uh, so in February, it proposed a plan where it would put the MEC coal into one company and the metals mines uh, into another company. And when this was proposed back in February, um, tech investors were sort of lukewarm on it, but people didn't give it too much thought. And probably most people thought, yeah, this will probably get passed and um, nothing much to see here. But uh, Glencore of Switzerland showed up about a month ago with a, uh, a takeover offer to buy all of tech right now. And that immediately threw a wrench in the, the plans of tech. And sort of um, Glencore just had this other option on the table. Um, and, um, and concurrently, uh, Tech is trying to convince its shareholders to go for the split. And today in Vancouver, the company was supposed to have a meeting item in the annual general meeting whereby investors would actually vote yes or no for the split. And at the 11th hour, uh, Tech said, what? we will not actually hold that vote. Uh, and, and the reason they didn't hold the vote on the split is because they didn't get enough votes uh, for it to be a success. And rather than going through um, what actually would have been uh, humiliating uh, public defeat, they just decided to yank it off the ballot entirely. But bottom line is tech's proposed split does not go ahead. Uh, it stays status quo, but uh, circling, like you pointed out, is uh, Glencore, and Glencore has been very clear that if tech lost the vote, which it effectively has, that its hostile takeover very much still stands, and it actually is planning, it said, to possibly increase the bid, um, and we would expect to see that happen uh, in the next few days, possibly. So moving very quickly, I, the big one of the big stories here, of course, was trying to read the tea leaves going into this vote because tech has tech has some pretty important uh, shareholders, and and again, it's one of those companies that has Class A shareholders, so their shares are worth more votes, and Class B shareholders, which they have less, you know, their their vote their their shares aren't worth as many votes. But uh, there's some really big players in tech together here, and they're going to have to try to fight this out, I guess. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, two classes of shareholders. Both classes, though, needed to vote uh, two-thirds in favor of the split. The A shareholders right. were already a lock because they're essentially 
uh, Tech Insiders. That's the Kivo family and a Japanese uh, shareholder that's been involved in the company for decades. They had already said, we're going to vote for the split. But the B shareholders, who is basically everybody else that just has one vote, two-thirds of them had to vote for the split. And um, you're right, heading into the, the vote, uh, let's say in the last week or so, it was very difficult to figure out um, where it stood. And um, from public disclosures, it was basically impossible to do the math because some of the really big shareholders had not made their attentions clear. Um, so we knew heading in to the last few days when the, when the votes are coming in that it was potentially going to be close. We didn't know how close it would actually end up being. So we believe that Tech was counting votes um, up until perhaps as late as this morning uh, when that wow. uh, uh, press release went out, certainly late last night. And um, at that point, um, I reported today that um, Tech controlling shareholder Norman B. Keeville, uh, didn't even know if, his, if the company's biggest shareholder, the biggest B shareholder, um, had voted for or against the split. And that in itself is kind of astounding. Uh, it is, think yeah. the China Investment Corporation, too, right? China Investment Corporation, that was the, that's the biggest uh, B yep. shareholder? Yeah. That's right. It's like an Apple. It's like a series on Netflix, this one, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of drama. There's too much drama, frankly, for my liking, because uh, I cannot uh, get this uh, deal out of my head. And um, I'm having trouble sleeping at night because I just can't really? stop thinking about permutations and what could happen next and, you know, what's, what CIC was going to do coming into the vote um, and, you know, working sources and everything else, trying to do the math, trying to figure it out. Um, but, yeah, CIC, ultimately, ultimately, we don't know, Ben, whether – uh, CSC voted for or against the split. The body language of the day seems to suggest they either voted against the split and in the process buried tech's chances or withheld its vote. Uh, right, didn't make which it. Which meant yeah. it just, it, it, not in itself, w- would have been very damaging for tech's chances. But, um, but yeah, it was uh, in some ways bizarre behavior from your biggest shareholder and also bizarre because about a week ago, tech CEO Jonathan Price had basically reassured the market saying, we're speaking with uh, CIC, we're, we're, we've been close with them, uh, and he was confident they would get, uh, tech would get the vote. And, and, and Niall, this has caused some concern. I mean, this week, uh, the finance minister, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland was talking about it. BC's Premier David Eby has been talking about it. Why the concern? Why is this company so important to Canada? Yeah, so there, there's several uh, major reasons uh, for <clears throat> all the politicians to take a very close close look at this. Um, and, and, and it is, of course, a hypothetical at this point because they would only study the transaction if there is an actual deal in place with, with tech. But if that happens and if the review starts, um, the politicians will be looking at things like, well, is it a good idea for a foreign-owned entity to own critical minerals mines that used to be owned by a Canadian company? Um, that will be potentially a high bar for Glencore to pass because the federal government has been very clear that Canada's position in critical minerals is not that great and it needs to toughen its position. Uh, so by selling a Canadian critical mineral miner to a foreign-owned company, that would not, in theory, uh, help that case. Uh, 
the feds would also look at any impact on national security. And while um, at first glance, you would think a Swiss company wouldn't raise any security concerns. This is not a state-owned Chinese company, for example. But uh, the feds would, would go quite deep um, on that um, scrutiny and look not just at where Glencore is based, but where its mines are and who it does business with. And um, Glencore has mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, it operates in Kazakhstan. It's historically operated in Russia and has historically had close ties to Russia. So um, it has had ties and has ties currently to authoritarian regimes that Canada uh, wouldn't be an ally of. So those things will uh, definitely be scrutinized. And um, also the, the last thing that will be of great interest is whether the whether an acquisition is of net benefit to Canada. And that means basically things like the impact on the economy, uh, jobs, uh, will, how will Canadian jobs be impacted and, and you know, what happens to the uh, head office and all the knock-on head office jobs that are created when you have a Canadian uh, headquarter company in Canada. So a lot of those things will be scrutinized. And, um, yeah, it's difficult to know what, what would happen ultimately at the end of the day. But uh, we know that if, if, if there is a deal in place, that a review will be thorough uh, long and the outcome would be wholly uncertain at this point. Well, wow. so right now we're just waiting to see what happens with the Glencore takeover bid in the next few days now that this vote has not happened. And I guess we're also waiting to see what Tech's other proposal might be. They have to, they've had to go back to the drawing board to some extent. They promised some other solution to this issue of the split, but we don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, what happens next in, in your assessment? Yeah, I think the, 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 the next shoe to drop will be Glencore. So um, Glencore's already said that if the bed fails or if the split vote fails, which it has, that its uh, offer <coughs> is still valid. And then, in fact, it's willing to increase the offer. Uh, Glencore's also said, of course, that it wants to engage with tax board. Tax board uh, was very clear today. It does not want to engage with Glencore. So the next logical step and something that Glencore is said it would probably do is take the offer direct to the B shareholders, which basically entails a tender offer. And that's sort of just kind of uh, bypassing the board, bypassing management and putting an offer out there for B shareholders and saying, uh, this is our offer and uh, tender uh, if you like it. And then Glencore would just need to reach a certain threshold. And Canada generally in a tender offer scenario uh, you're looking at uh, uh, a majority, so fifty percent uh, to 50%, at least, um, wow. yeah, at least get to the point where you control the board. Uh, there are higher thresholds, and ultimately, you do need to get a hundred percent of the shares. But fifty percent is really the critical level. So um, it could come to that, and um, I guess that's what we're waiting to possibly happen. Um, if if uh, if Glencore does not succeed in uh, engaging directly with um, with tech. Well, Niall, I hope you get some sleep. I know this has been a busy one. <laughs> Thank you so much for staying up tonight to, to fill us in on today's events. I much appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Really nice talking to you. It was a big day in Calgary yesterday. I mean, listen, everyone knows that you know, the Flames probably need a new rink, right? The Saddle Dome uh, is getting long in the tooth. It is the second oldest rink in the league right now after Madison Square Garden in New York. But, of course, MSG had a huge reno a while back. So um, so really, the Saddle Dome is the oldest. 
How to replace it, though? How to replace it? When to replace it? Who pays? Who pays? That's the big story. Well, you'll probably know that Calgary is already predicted to be a huge battleground in the upcoming Alberta election. So when a press release went out yesterday announcing a big announcement, including the premier in Calgary, just a few days before the election campaign starts, a lot of people put on their guessing hats and thought, well, here comes that rink. And they were right. They were right. The new arena plan was uh, revealed yesterday. It's still just a proposal. It hasn't been, it's not official yet. It's not a done deal. But it is a billion dollar, $1.22 billion plan or project to provide the hometown flames with a new home, amongst other things. And everyone, needless to say, announcing it yesterday was very enthusiastic about it. Here is Calgary's mayor. This is a generational investment in placemaking, creating space for community to gather. This entertainment hub will feature a new event center and a community arena, along with critical infrastructure required to support growth and development. Right. So, so far, so good, right? Who doesn't want that? But how much do you have to pay for it? That's always, that's always the question. The price tag, again, $1.2 billion. And the bulk of that money, approximately 70% of it, will be from the city and the province, Albertans, in other words, uh, taxpayers. A previous deal that fell apart back in 2021, I was reading, would have been about a $600 million event center split 50-50 or 40-60 between the city and the team's owners. Uh, that didn't happen. So now we have double the cost and the taxpayers picking up much more of it than they would have in the past. So how does it break down? $537.3 million from the city. $330 million from the province, which is tied mainly to infrastructure, uh, demolition of the existing building, I believe, and also $30 million for a community and practice facility that will be built beside the new Flames home. And in all that, $356 million from Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation, which owns the team, and that's going to be paid out over time. Uh, the Calgary Stampede's involved, too, because there's some land swapping going on and so forth. Uh, it's a very good deal. One gets the impression it's a very good deal for the Flames' ownership. And needless to say, their CEO was sounding very happy yesterday. Whether you're leading your ward, your city, or your province, you're always subject to intense scrutiny. We appreciate all that you do to help make our communities better. Yeah. I mean, people were excited about it. Lanny McDonald was, was there. I mean, it's a big deal, but really it all comes down to how much are you paying for it? Keep in mind, Edmonton 10 years ago got no money from the province for their new rink when they built uh, uh, Rogers. It was it worked out, I think, to about $615 million for that one. The city coughed up uh, more than half of that, $312 million. Uh, and then the team paid about 165. There was more with levies and so forth. So there is a history here of sort of the city getting involved and spending a lot of money on trying to bring these projects in, in hopes of revitalizing the areas and so on. Uh, but in this case, the province said no a decade ago. This time the province said, yes, sir, $330 million they're pouring into this. So the burden question tonight, is this a good deal for taxpayers or not? Few know the history of this topic, not necessarily the history of Calgary itself, but the history of this topic as well as my next guest. Andrew Zimbalist is an economist uh, and economics professor at Smith College in Massachusetts, which is near Boston. He's also author of numerous books on the money of sport, including Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. And for our purposes tonight, a book called Sports, Jobs and Taxes, the Economic Impact of Sports Teams 
and stadiums. And Andrew Zimbalist joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure to be with you, Ben. As always, I mean, when it comes up, I guess we come looking for looking for your opinion on this one. Yet another city has sort of put a lot of money into investing in a essentially what is a sports stadium. Uh, what do you what do you make of this one? It looks like it's a sixty forty split. A lot of taxpayer money going into this one. Yeah, I think it's 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 actually more than sixty percent is public money. As I as I read it, it's one point two two billion dollars, and the the public sector is putting in close to nine hundred. And so that that turns out closer to be 70, 75 percent range right. rather than 50 percent. Look, I, I, you know, I don't think it's uh, it's a very well negotiated deal on the part of the uh, the public entities. The, Forbes magazine says that if if the Edmonton Oilers sold today, they would sell for one point three billion dollars. And if the Calgary Flames sold today, they would sell for just under nine hundred million dollars. So basically, there's a difference there of four hundred million dollars. Uh, Calgary is actually a larger metropolitan area, not by much. It's a little bit larger than Edmonton. Uh, and so one has to ask the question, uh, and Forbes Forbes does this stuff very carefully. One has to ask the question, why does Forbes think that Edmonton Oilers are worth $400 million more than the Flames, even though Edmonton is uh, in a smaller market? And I think the answer has to be that Mr. Cates, the owner of the Oilers, was able to extract a, a very favorable deal for a new stadium or a new arena. So they're playing in a new arena, a new facility, and the Flames aren't. And if if the Flames get a new arena, that four hundred million dollar difference would would be uh, more than would be more than made up. At, at the very least, one can infer from these numbers that a new arena for the Flames will will raise their value by at least four hundred million dollars. And that that being the case. One would think that the the Calgary owner should be able to contribute at least that amount of money, and the deal that they've structured, I think, has them paying forty million dollars up front, and then seventeen million dollars incremented by one percent a year for the next thirty-five years. Well, in in current value terms, in current value terms, that amounts to two hundred eighty-six million dollars. So he he's getting a benefit. Of approximately or at least 400 million, and he's putting in 286 million. I don't see why that's that's a good negotiation for the for the city and and for the for the province. I think they could do better than that. Uh, that that's that's my fundamental reaction. Of course, there are a lot of other elements to the deal beyond yeah. the arena, and it's hard it's hard for me to assess the value of those because I'm I haven't made a study of of the Calgary economy. And there, I just leave it up. I'll leave it up to the mayor and the provincial governor to decide what what's, what's yeah needed. the the, the but, premier of the province. No, I agreed. I I guess what's interesting about this a is that a few years ago they had sort of reached a deal that was more of a fifty fifty partnership, and that fell through when uh, when the owners of the of the team were were sort of there was more cost coming up. I guess when you look at this too, one of the other things that comes up often is that these are like twenty twenty three best case scenario costs one can only imagine that exactly. as this gets underway this is only going to get more expensive and who's left holding the bag exactly right so you I, the devil is almost always in the details in these deals and there are all sorts of clauses that will impact the financial fallout from whatever gets done for instance as i read it it sounds like there won't be any property tax charge to to the team because it's going to be owned by uh, by the city or owned by some public entity. Given that it's owned by the city and being rented to the team, how much rent is going to be charged every year? 
maybe that's $17 million per year, maybe that's considered the rent, in which case it shouldn't be considered a capital contribution. So there, there are lots of details, but I think the one that you raise is, is a very important one, which is that we saw the previous project double from the initial estimate or more than double from the initial estimate. Uh, and this almost always happens with large capital projects, and part is because of inflation, and part is because they put together a plan in order to get political approval, and it's easy to get political approval if the if the numbers are lower. So I think we can expect, even if I'm, I'm sure they'll say, look, they've got a clause in there that says that there's a guaranteed maximum price, but those guaranteed maximum prices only pertain to deals that, that are stipulated to have certain characteristics. But after the project starts, if if the owner demands or the city comes along and says, hey, guess what? They really need another 10 luxury boxes. Or guess what? They really need a much larger scoreboard than we had anticipated. And that $1.22 billion price tag uh, didn't have that in it. And then they say, with the extra stuff, the bells and whistles we're going to add, it's not 1.22 anymore. Now it's 1.6 or it's 1.9 or whatever it might be. So you have that and you have inflation working against you. And there needs to be uh, a very clear indication in the me- memorandum of understanding uh, that's signed, what happens with these cost overruns? Whose responsibility is it? And of course, to the extent that it's going to fall, the responsibility is going to fall on the city or the province, then it becomes an even worse deal than than the one I outlined at the beginning. Yeah, even if it was, if even if the risk was distributed according to the way that the costs are distributed right now, I mean, Calgary does have. We, you know, you've looked at the Olympics a lot. Calgary built the current uh, arena, the, the the Saddle Dome, back for the 88, 88 Olympics. It's one of the oldest right. ones in the league. Right. Right. Um, you know, clearly there was some civic pride at work here, but it feels like that can often cloud one's image of just how desperately a, a new building is actually needed. It does strike me that. There's a reasonable argument to be made that an arena that was built in 1988, unless it's undergone major renovations, and mm-hmm. I don't know whether which it, has it hasn't. Or not. No, not really. No. Yeah, so I think there's a reasonable argument to say, yeah, let's let's work something out with the team owner and give the Calgary Flames a, a better venue to to work out of. Uh, and if they have a better venue to work out of, they'll have more revenue, and then the odds are then that they'll be able to spend more in their on their payroll and become a better team. Now, of course, that. That has to be qualified because the, the NHL has a salary cap, so it's not going to help help build the team all that much. But on the margin, it will help. And so that makes some sense. But then the question is, okay, once you, once you accept the notion that it's time for a new arena, then you want to strike a deal that's that's fair. And I, I j- just on, on the basis of the numbers that I was going through with you before, I don't think this is a fair deal. I think that the, the city and the province should be able to do better. Uh, Andrew, I was curious too in this in this case, if you have an existing, and we've seen this in many in many different jurisdictions, you have an existing stadium that's old, you tear it down, you build a new one. It feels like you're not creating. I mean, maybe you're creating some new stuff, but a lot of it, you're just sort of you're building on what's already there. So it's not like a huge job creator, is it? I'm just trying to make sense of all the words that have been all the nice words that have been thrown out the last twenty four hours. Uh, right, it's not a job creator. You you have a team there now. Uh, insofar as the Flames have broader appeal outside of Calgary and you're pulling people in from other parts of Alberta or you're pulling people in from other provinces or, or, or even from the United States, perhaps. Insofar as you have visitors coming in and bringing new money into the into the area, well, you already have that. The Flames already have that. And it's very unlikely with a new arena that all of a sudden people from Montana 
or from Wyoming or wherever are going to start going to Calgary to see to see the new arena. To be fair, in, in the first year of the arena, there might be some novelty effect and you'll draw a few more people in, but that it doesn't have any economic consequence. I don't think one can anticipate that this is going to raise the level of economic activity in either in Calgary or Alberta. And you know, the evidence we have for, for new stadiums in general is that they're they're not economic drivers. You know, so there will be money being spent, and yes, there will be construction jobs being created. But if the city and the province together are putting in roughly nine hundred million dollars of public money, that's money they're going to have to borrow. And when they have to borrow money, it means they have to do debt service on it. And when they have to do debt service, it means there's less money for other programs. So in the short run, you might be juicing up the the level of economic activity and, and creating some more jobs. Those jobs will then be diminished down the road when when the government has to set aside money for debt service rather than doing new infrastructure or building new schools or whatever else they might do. It's not something that should be seen as as an economic driver. The it seems to me the argument to be made here, if there is such an argument, is is that it's it's time for a new arena. The owner of Calgary Flames uh, deserves a new arena, and if we don't get him a new arena, maybe he'll move the the Flames out of out of the city. So that's that's one argument. And the other argument, I guess, has to do with the auxiliary rink that right. the, the other yeah. or revitalizing uh, the neighborhood, which we've seen in a lot of downtown cores around baseball stadium. I was just in San Diego. Uh, you know, Petco Field there is very nice and so on. But, you know, I was there in the middle of the day. The Padres were in town and the place was abandoned. Right? I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I did the economics of it to me, the economic argument of these. I can see why there's such an allure for politicians and the sporting franchises themselves. <laughs> Yeah. But, for the, but for the community, I always wonder just how valuable, if, if if not, if you didn't spend it on this, wouldn't you spend it on something else that mightn't be just as nice? Just as nice or better. Uh, if, if you're going to put $900 million of public money into rejuvenating downtown Calgary or another part of Calgary, uh, you have to look at what the alternatives are and whether or not the alternatives are more likely to, to generate new income for the city. Uh, hockey teams and sports teams in general don't don't do that. You know, keep in mind also you, you you're comparing it now to Petco Petco Park in, in San Diego. Yeah. Baseball baseball stadiums are are used at least 81 days a year by the team. Hockey stadiums are used at least 41, so it's roughly half the number of games. And the, the days that it's not used, uh, well, maybe to be used for yeah, concerts, uh, I guess. And there's a junior team, or yeah. circus or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but Basically, you have 41 games that are being provided uh, entertainment by the team instead of 81 in baseball, and they're 365 days of the year. So then you've got That's either, you have, either, the, either the stadium, the, the arena is dark uh, yeah. the the other 320 days, or you've got to go out and find some other activities to to fill it. But when you have when you have a facility that takes up 10 or 15 acres of land and it's not being used either half the days of the year or two-thirds of the days of, of the year, it's it's not going to be an economic driver for the neighborhood. People aren't going to want to set up a restaurant or a clothes, clothes shop or other retail activity uh, for an arena that's only going to be used half the days of the year. So, so uh, Andrew, if, if I'm if I'm a resident of Calgary or a resident of Alberta, you know, specifically if I live somewhere else and I'm watching public money go into this, what are the questions that I that you should be asking yourself now, do you think? when Because there's not a lot of detail out there just yet. Well, I would start by taking apart and examining the numbers that they're throwing out. Part of the publicity that they're putting out is a claim that the team will be contributing seven hundred and forty-eight million dollars uh, to the to the activity 
Uh, that that number is misleading. The reason it's misleading is because the vast majority of it comes in seventeen million dollar increments uh, that that go up one percent every year. What you have to do if you want to assess how much it's contributing to a project that costs one point two two billion dollars, if you ha- you have to take the present value of these payments over time, seventeen million dollars that are going to be paid thirty five years from now. You have to you have to use a discount rate. A normal discount rate that's used these days is around seven percent, could be eight percent or even higher. But using a seven percent discount rate, that seven hundred and forty-eight million dollars has a present value of two hundred and eighty-six million dollars. So there there's some deception going on, and people shouldn't fall for it. Yeah, Andrew, it won't surprise you. There's a provincial election coming up in the very near future. Andrew Simplist, as always, thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. You know what's not friendly? Politics. Joe Biden announced he was running for re-election yesterday. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. There he is, running for re-election. Now, of course, you know, it's it's most incumbents run for re-election. It's pretty natural, right? It's been a long time since one did it. It hasn't been that long since one lost. Do you think of, of course, Donald Trump uh, in 2020 and then George Bush Sr. back uh, in the early 90s and so on. Uh, incumbents occasionally lose Jimmy Carter, but often they run again and they win. So it's not a big surprise that Joe Biden would want to run again. But you know what came up a lot yesterday? His age, of course, because he's already the oldest uh, living president uh, at 81. He will be 82 uh, next November. So <clears throat> he'll be 82. Uh, he's not yet 81, I don't think. I'm going to try to do the math here. Yes, he turns 81 in November, and he'll be 82 next year once the election date is over. It's not that long. November 20th is his birthday. But if he were to win again, he would end up being 86 when he leaves office. And listen, you know, the Queen was in her 90s, obviously. Uh, the Pope is older than that. But when it comes to your elected leader, sometimes that gives people pause for thought. So Journalists, intrepid as they are, went out and asked Americans yesterday, well, listen, are you surprised that he's running again? Here's what they had to say. I don't think he needs to run. I think he's way too old. I think there needs to be an age limit because I think as you age, your capacities aren't where they should be. I I try to be open because I would never tell anyone, you know, as long as they have fight and drive in them to just give up. I, I want you to keep fighting. That's what keeps people alive. That's what keeps people going. So as long as he has that drive and that will, Absolutely. Just do it. There you go. Uh, a bit of both uh, in, in, in those in those reactions to it yesterday. Few are as uniquely placed as my next guest, Jay Olshansky, to talk about this. He's with the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Jay, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Good evening. You knew this was coming, didn't you? I mean, you've been talking about this for quite a while now, but you knew the moment he announced he was going to uh, seek a second term that the flood would, the intrepid journalist would be asking this question again. And here we are again tonight. But I was really interested in your in your perspective on this because this goes back a while to back to the Obama days and this common, well, I guess, perception, misperception that the presidency ages you, ages you faster than it would normally if you did any other job. And you set out to figure out whether that was true or not. It's not true. Uh, In a nutshell. Yeah, that's pretty simple, right? So, look, uh, people have been claiming for a long time that being president uh, leads to accelerated aging and shortens life. And the fact is, is that, uh, you know, presidents live longer than average. And it's a classic example of 
the effects of the social determinants of health, of the benefits of education and income and access to the best best medical care. You provide that to everyone, and guess what? Uh, life expectancy is going to go up. People would live longer, and that's exactly what we see among uh, the president. So, no, they do not die sooner. They actually live longer. And, you know, as I was listening to the interviews from, from the folks here in the U.S., uh, there's a lot of armchair gerontologists out there, right? They, they love that. I love that term, Jay. I love yeah, that term. Yeah, they're drawing conclusions based on a limited amount of information. We actually did something quite novel. Imagine this. We actually looked at the president's medical records by experts who study longevity for a living. Uh, think about that for a second. And what we, what did we find? We actually found that he is healthier than most people his age. He may actually fall into the category of what's called a superager. These are people who make it past the age of 80 that are healthy, functioning at a cognitive level that can be decades younger than their current age. So, no, while it's true that some people may not be well-suited for the presidency in their 80s, some can be, and if they are, or in their thirties, or their forties, or their fifties, or their sixties. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of. Uh, I guess thirty-five is the is the baseline, right? But um, and there's but and there's so much made of this, though. I, I guess, and you've pointed this out too. I love the term armchair armchair gerontologist because it's so. You're right. Uh, I think we often use our own experiences and think and think of people that we know in their early eighties, but that's changed a lot in over time too, right? I mean, it's changed yeah. in, the, in the past thirty years. Yeah, um, I actually had this discussion with some of my friends now long ago. Look, I'm 69. My friends and I were seated around a table the other day. What were we talking about? Each person consecutively was talking about their workout schedule. You know, I run five miles. I go on an elliptical. I walk, you know, 15 miles a week, whatever. This discussion did not take place in my, our parents' generation. Uh, no. They died much sooner. They smoked. They, you know ate margarine, trans fats. I mean, aging isn't what it used to be. People can make it out to older ages now, very healthy, uh, vibrant, you know, live into their 80s, 90s, uh, doing exceptionally well. So, yeah, there's a lot of variability. Yeah, and, and when we look at the debate, I mean, it became very much a big issue, I guess, in in the last election because both candidates were were older. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump was in his in his earlier seventies, and Joe Biden in his later seventies. If those two meet again, I mean, I guess it's it's not when you look at the median age in America, and then you realize that both people running to be president are much older than that. I suppose it's natural for people to look and think, "Wow, well, wait a second. Like, there must be someone younger out there who could do this. But as you mentioned, that doesn't disqualify either, well, doesn't disqualify by age either person from doing a good job. No, I mean, we evaluated the medical records of both uh, President Biden and President Trump and came to the conclusion that both of them would likely survive to the end of their term. Uh, both of them could be superagers. We actually predicted that Biden is likely to live longer uh, than Trump, even though he's older, uh, because his, you know, his risk factors are extremely low for uh, for Biden. He's barely taking any medication. Uh, he's riding his bicycle, extremely healthy. You know, Trump, by contrast, is is obese. He has a family history of Alzheimer's disease. Um, he's got some health issues, but he does come from a family history of exceptional longevity. So yeah, I, I you know, I think if they both run in this in this next election the United States is going to explode. I mean, it just, it just yeah. 
you know, yeah. this whole issue of age for sure is going to come up, but it will diffuse it to some extent if both candidates are in their late 80s, uh, late 70s or early 80s. Anything that anyone would say about the other candidate could be said about them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that, that I find interesting about it primarily is that it's not like we don't have examples, whether it be, you know, the, the Queen, rest her soul, uh, or, or Pope Francis, who are older, much significantly older than Joe Biden is, who continue to, to do a fine job doing what they need to do. Um, I guess there is this thing about the presidency in the U.S. where it's sort of baked in that there's this kind of, uh, you're, you're both leader and, and statesperson, but you're also meant to be sort of army, you know, army general or field generals to some extent, you know, there is a certain virility that's, that's, uh, that's superimposed upon the position, which, you know, maybe is it, is a bit unfair because a statesperson is perhaps what is needed in these, in these times. Well, keep in mind that the mid thirties was chosen as the youngest age to become president. And the reason why our forefathers did that was because they wanted the president to have enough experience in life to be able to make the kinds of decisions that presidents make. Well, if, you know, if you have to be in your mid-30s to start out, uh, and if experience is the critical factor involved, then an 80-year-old is more than adequately qualified with experience to run the country. So, no, age, you know, in this case, I, I sort of like the fact that that uh, I've got we've got somebody uh, who's experienced. I, you know, when somebody's flying an airplane that I'm flying in, I actually prefer older pilots, people that have been around for a long time, that have lots of experience, that they know what goes wrong in planes. Uh, you know, it's the experience that counts. So, yeah, I have no problem with it. You made an interesting point, Jay, in, in an article that you wrote about this that. Uh, public figures are under so much scrutiny these days, and Biden's a pretty active 80-year-old. So every once in a while, he has a stumble or he falls off his bike, and people let people go ape over it when it happens. Well, you know, when he 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 was riding his bicycle last summer, uh, and he fell off, like most of us do, by the way, when we ride a bike and we use toe straps, um, which was probably a mistake. Um, but he fell off, and everyone was saying, you know, President didn't klutz, or I can't remember the exact term that they were using, but they were making fun of him for falling off his bike like there was something wrong with him. And those of us that study aging for a living were thinking, oh, my God, they're, they're actually barking up the exact wrong tree. The fact is, is that you've got somebody in his late 70s who's on his bicycle, which is a right. strong signal that, uh, you know, he is very uh, active physically, which is very good for his uh, cognitive functioning. And so, no, it was actually a signal, a positive signal um, that he's exercising, he's keeping himself fit. And my guess is that that's exactly what he would continue to do uh, if elected again. Look, um, keep in mind, there's nothing wrong with asking the question about his age. I actually find think that it's perfectly appropriate. It's just inappropriate to discriminate against him or anyone else based on their age. It's a legitimate question. He's an 80-year-old man. The risks are, are much higher when, when you're 80, but there's a lot of variability, and some are healthy and some are not. If they're healthy, hey, why not? Yeah, I remember George W. falling off his bike at, at a G8 once, and he was only in his 50s, I think, his early 50s at the time. I suppose in some ways, uh, Biden uh, as president, and if he were to win again, for instance, should serve as a reminder to all the rest of us to be a little less ageist, to be a little less ageist when it comes to this kind of stuff. 
Well, how about a lot less ageist? I mean, how about yeah, not ageist no, at not all? Not at all, exactly. I, I, you know, I think the time has arrived for America to grow up uh, and to realize that uh, healthy older individuals are perhaps one of the most precious resources that we have. And we should be nurturing uh, older individuals, uh, you know, helping them make it to older ages healthy rather than discriminating against them because of how many times they've traveled around the sun. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense uh, to uh, discriminate based on age, just like it doesn't make any sense to discriminate based on, you know, eye color, hair color, skin color, gender, any of that stuff. It's, uh, that should all be completely irrelevant. It's the person uh, inside that's important and, wh- and whether or not we like their policies. Yeah, and I guess in the case of a president like Biden, it's it's a reminder that that someone in their eighties can still be not 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 just a not just a productive and functioning member of society, but the head of the you know the, the leader of the free world. It is, and you look at the Pope; he's in his eighties, he's still going pretty strong. He's got some physical issues. The Queen did you know, was still doing had a big busy pack schedule right into her nineties. We have lots of examples around us of people, uh, world leaders in in in, in their later years. Oh, yeah, the elders. I mean, look, I sat around a table with a group of uh, people all over the age of 80. They were actually part of a study of superagers. So these people were, were part of a research project. They'd already passed uh, the requirements of, of being a superager. And I was seated at a table uh, with, I don't know, six to eight of them. And if I, I closed my eyes, I felt like I was around a bunch of teenagers. You know, they were all uh, chatting about the latest workout that they were doing and their kids and their grandkids. And they were engaging in conversation just as if they were, were teenagers. If your eyes are closed, you wouldn't know that they weren't young people, except they were really smart, very experienced, and and not afraid to speak their mind. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Biden falls into that category of a superager, somebody who's made, made it out there. And they're, you know, he's not. L- let me be clear. Chronologically, he's he's 80 biologically, he is probably somewhere around 10 to 20 years younger uh, than that age. We don't all age at the same rate biologically. We all age at the same rate chronologically. But uh, And you know this, by the way, intuitively, by going to your high school reunion. Uh, You can see variation in aging. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah, Joseph, President Biden's in pretty good shape. Jay, uh, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Thanks for having me. When it comes to aging, of course, sports arenas, well, they don't age as well, do they, right? Especially ones, somehow, ones built in the 70s and the 80s don't seem to have aged particularly well. So in Calgary, it's long been said that it's time to replace the Saddle Dome with something spanking new, something glitzy, something glamorous that they can put there and put the flames in. And, um, you know, there's an election around the corner. And sure enough, there was an announcement, sort of a press release that came out yesterday announcing a big announcement in Calgary that afternoon, yesterday afternoon. And there was a lot of speculation that here it is, here it is. The election's coming up, and now the province is going to pour some money into this much-needed, or much-wanted at least, uh, stadium project or arena project in Calgary, because Calgary is going to be a battleground in this provincial election. So sure enough, there was the Premier, Daniel Smith, in her flame shirt, saying this. Over the past number of years, Calgary has been faced with the difficult problem of replacing the aging Saddle Dome and revitalizing the Rivers District and our downtown. Every day we delay finding a solution, more and more economic and cultural opportunities are lost, and the risk of losing our beloved hockey team grows. Yes, it is absolutely 
urgent that this be announced just a few days before an election campaign starts. Absolutely urgent. The timing has nothing to do with politics. It's about protecting the integrity of this project. Absolutely. <laughs> of course. Um, here's part of the issue, though. This project comes with a $1.2 billion price tag, which is not out of the ordinary for these sorts of things. I was mentioning earlier that uh, the Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, which was a renovation job, essentially, uh, cost about a billion U.S. That was way over budget, by the way. Uh, all of it private money, I believe. But in this case, 70% of it's going to be public money. And that's a lot of public money. Uh, $537 million from the city, $330 million from the province, uh, and then $356 million from the team. But that's split up over time. And this is from a province that didn't want to put any money into the Edmonton rink when they went set out looking for money 10 years ago, uh, back in 2013. So let's look into the politics of this all, because Rachel Notley, the uh, opposition leader, was out today saying calling, saying, listen, we need some transparency here. We're not going to go vote on this until we know what this deal is all about. And it looks like uh, the provincial government right now is saying, hey, listen, just trust us. And if you vote us in, as the premier was saying yesterday, if you vote us in, this will all go ahead. And why would you want to vote against that? So there you go. Being bribed with your own money works every time. Catherine Krakowski is the legislative reporter at Alberta Today, and she joins me now from Edmonton. Catherine, thanks. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. Yeah, so tell me about getting this press release yesterday, because even I in BC thought, oh, they're going to announce the rink. <laughs> and I guess everyone was right. Everyone was right. Well, it was quite the channel changer, because earlier in the day, we had been talking about where Daniel Smith stands on healthcare. So, yeah, um, we we see, oh, there's an announcement. Gee, wonder what that is. Um, so it is, in fact, this memorandum of understanding for the for the deal, um, but it's not the deal signed yet, as as uh, the premier said yesterday. To ensure it gets built, vote UCP May 29th, and then today yeah. she turns around at her news conference and says, "Oh, I don't want to make this political. I think every every party should uh, agree to this, and you know the council was unanimous. Let's every party agree to this." Yeah, I mean, listen, it's classic politics, right? And, but and we know Calgary is going to be, I mean, let's be honest, this election will probably be won or lost in Calgary. So this is a big deal. Oh, yeah, 100%. So it, to win Alberta, you need two of the three. You need Edmonton, you need Calgary, and everywhere else. And this time around, battleground is Calgary. Everywhere else, pretty much UCP, Edmonton, it's going to stay that orange blob. Yeah. Um, right now, the battleground is Calgary. And right now, the NDP has three seats. Um, they're looking to really expand that. And in fact, in order to win, they need to sweep the city. Um, but there's there's sort of this interesting north-south split going on. But yeah, absolutely, battleground Calgary. So it was kind of weird in the budget to see, well, Calgary doesn't even have as much Bending is Edmonton, even though it's a battleground. What's going on here? Smith says, well, actually, Calgary was $312 million less than Edmonton in infrastructure spending. But, oh, there's this arena deal. So we're even now. Here it is. Here it is. What's the reaction been like? What was what was the fallout like today? I was reading what uh, what the opposition leader, NDP leader Rachel Notley, was tweeting, saying essentially, you know, we're not, you know, no one's opposed to the Flames getting a new rink, right? I think people think that's probably a good deal. We see how successful 
uh, the Edmonton Oilers' new home has been for Edmonton, even though I gather people still complain about the cost of it. Uh, but what's been the fallout today politically and, 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 and from Edmonton too? I mean, Edmontonians must be looking at this going, wait a second, you said no to you know, provincial money 10 years ago and here you are dishing it out. Yeah, well, well, that was that was quite quite something because while Rose leader Daniel Smith ten years ago said there's no appetite for uh, middle class taxpayers to fund millionaire hockey players and subsidize billionaire owners, and now today she she well, it's it's interesting because in in your clip she said we don't want the flames to leave the city, but when when you talk to her she says oh we are not funding this arena directly it is all the public infrastructure portion of this project um right so it's but but the political it's it's been spin 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 the the ndp has said oh this is a the secret deal they're hiding it as you as you said they said hey flames arena they need an arena the the ucp however sent me an email that said Notley rejects arena deal. So, you know, the game is on. (laughs) (laughs) The Battle of Alberta is on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, who would have thought that before the election even began, they would start fighting over hockey, which is sacred, right? It's sacred. Um, I don't think the flames the would go off. anywhere. <laughs> yeah, the gloves are already off. We haven't even started the campaign yet. Um, when you look at I, mean, I, I guess this becomes now, regardless of what anyone is saying, this will become a campaign issue. It has to be. Yeah, for sure. As, as much as Smith said uh, she didn't want it to be, she wanted it to be. She wants to go the NDP into saying, no, this is terrible corporate welfare. And the NDP is kind of throwing it back in her face and saying, like, what about the transparency? So so no matter what, it's going to be an issue. The question is, how big of an issue? Because at the top of polling, at the top of people, people's minds is still affordability. And so... It's, I'm kind of <laughs> curious about who's who this is targeting because you know I don't have hundreds of dollars to shell out for a ticket. Never mind the seventeen dollar beers when when people are wondering about how to pay their groceries. So it's but yeah, at the same I think, time, I think it was the, yeah, the Beaverton, the satirical uh, magazine had its headline today was uh, was Calgary tackles housing affordability by giving flames new home. <laughs> right, so. Uh, <laughs> It was an interesting one. I mean, there is there is always the idea here, like, is this really what you should be spending public money on is, is a new home for, for your hockey team? I get the civic pride. You know, I, I understand how it all works. I grew up in Montreal. I mean, they would, you know, they love the team to, you know, there's never a chance of losing it, but still, I get it. But, but this the timing of this is all just a little bit, the timing of this is so, is so blatant that you kind of scratch your head. Yeah, it's it's kind of hilarious that uh, the premier was saying like, oh well, you know we would have loved to have had it months ago, and it's just coincidence. It's not coincidence. Come on. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah. This is uh, if this were uh, the Vegas line would be uh, would be a pick'em, and this one looks very close. Is that? I mean, that's what the polls were saying a while back. Is that what they're still saying now that this is this is a toss-up heading in? Yeah, like, and this might be kind of bizarre for your listeners elsewhere, but Alberta has never had a close election. Alberta has never had a close election. Like, the the closest one was probably 2015. There were 54 NDP seats, 22 Wild Rose, 10 PCs. But 
Alberta is the the land of these super majorities and and dynasties. So it and the polls have not budged. They're in a dead heat still. We'd yeah, be going I, I mean, triple I, over time. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I guess there's. I mean, I've I've seen polls that show that the UCP could win forty four. I mean, forty four is a majority, right? I've been looking at polls that show the UCP could win forty four, forty six, forty seven, and the, looking at polls that show the NDP could win forty four, forty five. I guess their ceiling is a little bit lower than the UCP's. Um, what do you think are going to be the big topics fought over here? Because it's hard from the outside. There's so much that's been talked about. Daniel Smith has made obviously some you. Know, Know, some mistakes. She's made a big impression, regardless of what you think that impression is negative or positive. Um, but what do you think the battles are going to be about in this election? Is it boiling up, boiling down to sort of affordability and, and, and Ottawa? Like, what, what do you feel like? What's your sense of what the real hot topics are going to be? Yeah, so affordability still is in that top slot. And then from there, um, health care has been a huge issue, which obviously the NDP have ownership over and then the economy is still a a huge one which the ucp has ownership over so which is so the top three issues are kind of contributing to why it's so close because they they each have sort of their issue um that they have ownership over so it kind of will come down to those individual owners and and you mentioned um you mentioned daniel smith and as some of the reaction to to her, if it were up to the NDP, they'd love to make it an election about uh, competence and leadership. Um, if it were, and if it were up to Smith, they'd say, "Hey, uh, look at how terrible things were under the socialist NDP for those four years. We lost jobs. We drove investment out of the province. We did not get pipelines built. Uh, Trudeau walked all over us." So you know, it's, yeah, it's I mean, that's the, the impression I get. Uh, from the outside is that the NDP would love this to be a referendum about Danielle Smith and Danielle and the UCP would love this to be a referendum about Rachel Notley, Jugmeet Singh and, and Justin Trudeau and specifically the the, la- the latter. Yes, the 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 Singh Notley Trudeau alliance as as yeah, they yeah. as they like to, to say. Um yeah, um yeah. but it's yeah, go ahead. How, how much? How much do you think campaigning is going to make a difference here? Because what's really, what I find really fascinating about this one is that Danielle Smith, while having been premier, although never she's never won an election, having been premier for a while now, has got to sort of put her stamp on things. But not least, actually, the more experienced leader and campaigner here. Although Danielle Smith is by no means a rookie. I mean, she was the head of the Wild Rose. She has experience too. So you have these two very experienced, uh, very, very big personalities going at each other. It's going to be a real heavyweight battle between these two women. Yeah. And, and what's not being said in the, you're the worst. No, you're the worst is where, where do all those middle voters go? Um, because yeah. the, the, it's, it's so interesting. Those two parties are the only ones who are running a full slate. Um, the, the next highest number is the green party who have never won a seat in Alberta, even though they held the balance of power in BC, I know. Um, mm-hmm. Liberal yes. parties got shut out. Um, Alberta party got shut out. All these sort of centrist parties have evaporated. The fundraisings evaporated. But yeah, you have two premiers who are veterans. They've, they've been around uh, for a decade, although Smith took her hiatus in the 
broadcasting and lobbying world in the in the yes. interim, but it's it's so fast happening. They're both known quantities, so it's very interesting. Yeah. So just just what will you expect to see, having watched other campaigns? What do you expect to see on Monday? Do they come out gangbusters, or or because it feels like the campaign's already begun and it has been going on for some time now? But do you expect them to come out Monday with you know? Is it going to be you know, right out of the gates, like, like play, not to use another hockey analogy, but like right out of the gates, it's going to be playoff hockey day one. Oh, I mean, the, the election campaign has pretty much started since October when Smith got uh, elected. Um, right. They've both been holding party newsers. Like normally the government likes to use the, the levers of government because they get to say, hey, we're funding this and we're funding this. They're both been doing uh, actual party announcement, not not just the government and caucus. Um the the race is on. The race is on. Puck hasn't even dropped yet and they're Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's still the preseason and they're going and they're going at it. Uh as always, Catherine, thank you so much for your time tonight. We'll catch up, I'm sure, during what's going to be a very uh exciting week. I won't make you I won't make I won't make you make any predictions just yet because it's gonna be gonna be a close one, I know. So we'll uh we'll we'll save that for the next time we talk during the campaign. Thanks so much. Thank you. And Oilers will win. <laughs> oh, yes. The only, That's my prediction. Better yet, let's talk about <laughs> something less controversial. The Oilers should be able to get out of the first round, we hope. Catherine, thank you so much. All right, thank you. We're going to talk about friendly cities this half hour because this is one of those surveys. I mean, I, I like to read surveys just because, you know, you work in, if you work in news, you're like, oh, look, a survey. I wonder where the Canadian cities Finish. This was an interesting one because, of course, it got some coverage in Toronto. Uh, it was a survey carried out by a company called Preply. They're essentially a company that pairs up tutors and language learners around the world, right? <clears throat> so they set out to develop something called a community spirit index. And really what they were trying to figure out was cities that would be good for people learning another language, specifically English, but also other languages, a city they could go to where they would feel welcome. Right, So they uh, looked at a bunch of different criteria to come up with a list. They took 53 cities around the world, and they used a bunch of different criteria uh, to come up with a comprehensive rating of the ranking of these 53 cities. And that include, for for friendliness really to people who are not from there. Uh, So they looked at uh, metrics such as visitor visitor return rates, safety ratings, LGBTQ plus equality, overall happiness and so forth to determine what were the most welcoming cities for people, then recommend them to their students, obviously. Um, And you know who finished top? Toronto. Toronto. I mean, it was one of the Toronto, you've won another championship. Maybe not a Stanley Cup since, you know, since 67, but here you are at the top of the heap. Um, in this community spirit, uh, community spirit index, and it was an interesting finding because I'm like, wow, I lived in Toronto, and I couldn't, you know, and, and you know, keep in mind the only Canadian cities that were included in this ranking were Toronto and Montreal, and Montreal finished sixth, Toronto finished first, tied with Sydney, Australia, by the way, uh, a city I've actually never been to, so I can't speak with any authority about about Sydney, Australia. Uh, but, you know, I lived in Toronto. I spent a lot of time in Toronto because like all Montrealers from English-speaking families, I had always had lots of family there. I've always really loved Toronto as a city. It's a great place. But I never thought of it as being particularly friendly. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a big city. It's friendly, I suppose, compared to some other places. But I never thought – friendly is not the first word that comes to mind, right? And yet it scored something like 7.97 out of 10. That's how it ended up 
as number one. Here's what the here's what they had to say about it. Toronto boasts a very decent visitor return rate of 15%, which means that people who come to Toronto tend to love it so much that they come back again and again, and for good reason. With a happiness score of 7.3 or 0.03 out of 10, a very high LGBTQ plus equality score of 90 out of 100, Toronto is an inclusive and welcoming place for everyone. There it is at number one. So... I wanted to find out more about this. So we called up the company and said, tell us about this. Tell us about this survey that you did where Toronto finished number one. Tell us about some of the other cities as well. Uh, I'll go over them as well. You know, Manchester and Edinburgh were up there. Um, certainly, as I said, Montreal was up there. Dublin was up there in the top 10 as well. So in- English-speaking cities had a bit of an advantage here. But Toronto, number one alongside Sydney, Australia. Sylvia Johnson is the head of methodology and learning at Preply, and she joins me now from another city that made the top 20, Barcelona in Spain. Sylvia, thanks for your time tonight. No, well, thank you for having me today. Very excited to be here. Yes, this has gotten a fair amount of uh, coverage in Canada, needless to say. Anytime a Canadian city finishes on top of a list or tied for top, we tend to pay attention to it. Tell me a bit about the Community Spirit Index. What are you looking to measure and who is it? Uh, who does it apply to? Okay, perfect. So, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Preply, which also gives you the context you need to understand why we decided to run this survey. So we're an online language marketplace, so we connect global networks of standards and thousands of learners and tutors around the world. And so for our students, especially those who are learning English, they're really looking for life-changing experiences such as moving abroad or just traveling. And so we wanted to come up with a survey which would allow us to make recommendations about where they should go. So we thought, okay, what can we measure? Let's measure a city's friendliness. And so this is kind of how we came up with the idea of what is a community spirit. Because if you think about community spirit, it's a little bit about building a sense of belonging and connectedness it means that it's really, really easy for a newcomer to integrate into a city. And so we we looked at different metrics. We thought about, okay, what do we need to look at to understand how friendly a city is? And then we went from there. So we looked at friendly staff. So we looked at the percentage of accommodation reviews, which mentioned friendly. So this would give us an idea of how welcoming the locals were when people came and stayed. We looked also at the visitor return rate, the city safety index score. So indicating basically, is it a safe environment, both for those who live there, but also for anyone planning on traveling there, acceptance of diversities. Then we also looked at the overall happiness and well-being of a school. So this obviously is much more according to the inhabitants of the city rather than anything else. We looked at the friendliness. So friendliness was a funny one to define. How open are inhabitants to new friendships how open are they to actively making new friends and then finally given that the target audience of this survey was advanced english speaking students then we also looked at well the the english proficiency of each of the cities it, and it does skew towards not not exclusively. There are cities where people, English is not the first language, including including Montreal, where people might argue a bit about that. Uh, so here we are, Toronto, uh, our own Toronto, uh, ties with Sydney essentially, but finishes top of the pile. How did that happen? So when we added up all of the different schools, Toronto 
Very, very impressive overall friendliness score. So Toronto also boasts a really decent visitor return rate, so around 15%, which means that people who come to Toronto tend to love it so much that they come back again and again. And also for a good reason, right? So if we also look at the happiness score of Toronto, it gets a 7.03 out of 10. So really important that the inhabitants love where they live. They're happy living there. In summary, Toronto is a great place to live. It's very inclusive. It's welcoming to everybody. And hey, if you're an advanced English learner, you can communicate fairly well with the Torontons as well. Torontons, I'm sorry, I've just made that uh, word Torontonians, up. Probably... Torontonians, yeah, Torontonians. No, absolutely. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the top ten is interesting because there's a lot of cities in there that people may may know well. There's uh, Edinburgh, which is a on the smaller city side, right? Manchester, New York, which is a massive place, not necessarily known for its friendliness, but I guess this isn't really a measure of friendliness. That's just one of the things that comes into place. Montreal was also up there in sixth spot, so two Canadian. Canadian cities made the top six, which is, um, if you're Canadian, it's always impressive. Uh, When you look at the top 10 as a whole, and that included uh, Copenhagen, Dublin, San Francisco, Melbourne, Sydney, you know, the cities I've mentioned, what kind of unifies all of them? Was Was it sort of an ability to be good right across the board? Exactly. And I think it's when you look at all of those different metrics as well. So none of them stood out as being particularly low or necessarily very high in any of those categories. It was just across the board. I mean, obviously, as this survey was geared towards English language learners, then if you had that English speaking proficiency, that would also push your score a little bit further up. But no, overall, I think it was really interesting that there was a real widespread of all the different points of the globe as well. Right. For instance, you're in Barcelona, a city that I've been to, a great place, but I guess the English proficiency in a place like Barcelona or Madrid or Prague or Berlin or Paris pushed all, Lisbon pushed all those a little bit down as well. I know that it can be tricky. I would say this that English is still a pending assignment for a lot of Spanish people. And so if you're moving from one English speaking, well, if you have a certain, uh, not such a good level of Spanish, it's going to make it that little bit more complicated. And hence why we call it community spirit. But it's about actually connecting with the inhabitants and becoming part of that as well. Sylvia, tell me a bit about the the bottom, the, the least friendly. I suppose it's not really the right way of putting it, but the, the cities that didn't finish so well, the community community spirit index, you call them the least friendly cities, but I guess that could be a bit of a a bit of a lump. There was some, what, what do you think united those? Because there's cities in there that I've been to, like Kuala Lumpur and Athens and uh, Doha and Lyon that are all, and my mum has been to Medellin, all kind of decent places, but what kind of unified the lower scores? I saw that uh, Lyon got very low on friendly staff, like zero. Zero <laughs> percent. Exactly. And that's exactly what sort of I think quite often with those with those cities that came in the lower end of the survey, it was just one particular point, one little factor that just brought them down. I mean, obviously, there was, again, a lot of the English proficiency that brought people down. The acceptance of the more diverse community could, to a certain extent, bring those cities down as well. I mean, I would hate to say that any of these cities are unfriendly. They just didn't receive as high scores as some of the other like as you said before, like Toronto was leading the chart. Sydney was high up there. New York was high up there. But all of these cities, I think I, I would still recommend that people go and visit them and see them and find out for themselves and perhaps be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I still found it funny that Leo is down there because not only, but because it got 0% for, for friendly staff, which is, I mean, if, you have, if you've been, that's sort of like the, you know, that's the stereotype of the French service industry. A highest demand for making connections with others. That was an interesting one because many of the cities that finish quite high in your friendliest, but not all, 
were there. So Toronto was eighth highest when it came to uh, looking to make connections with others. But Sao Paulo finished number one. New York was two. Paris was number three. Not a city you always think of as being very friendly or very approachable. No, absolutely. And I think we were all surprised by that as well. But especially with seeing Sao Paulo up there so high that there is a real demand, I think, there for people looking to actively go out, meet new people, make new friends. So perhaps that speaks a little bit to the openness of the different cultures. They're very, very happy to adopt newcomers to the city and make them part of their groups, find activities to do and share with. So yeah, I think it was it was it was a very interesting validation for us as well about how that varied amongst countries. Because as you said, we might have certain stereotypes in our heads, but actually you see that there are so many cities that are so welcoming to to newcomers. And again, we live in a much more global, globalized workforce or location right now. And so people are much more used to moving from one place to another. I mean, especially since that since the hybrid working has come right. into place. You can pretty much work from anywhere now. And so it's a really good opportunity for people to travel abroad and they want to know, okay, but if I go there, am I going to be sat in a room on my own with my computer connected to Zoom all the time? Or am I going to have the chance to to meet new people and, and get out there? Yeah, the the um, the connections uh, survey focused on or make, highest demand for making connections survey uh, focused on the annual search demands for how to make friends in Sao Paulo and New York were both number one, which is which is interesting because they are both and Istanbul was number four, London number five, Mexico City six, Rio seven because these are massive cities, right? So I can see why when landing there you'd want to sort of search on how to make friends because it can be kind of big and, and intimidating. No, absolutely. And especially if it's not your first language, especially if you're you're struggling with the language proficiency as well. It's how do I get out there? How do I put myself out there? How do I meet people? Do I join the gym? Do I go and learn how to do ceramics with people? And I think people often struggle to make that first move. So it's really, really interesting for us that there are also in these huge cities, there are apps and ways of connecting and matching with people, which ultimately means you, as if you're thinking about moving to that city, you probably feel a little bit more confident that it's not going to be a dreadful experience. Yeah. Tell me, how, what's the reaction been like to uh, to this? Because I know in Canada, there was certainly coverage because, as I was mentioning, anytime a Canadian city finishes uh, top ranked, we tend to talk about it. <laughs> Yes, I think, I mean, in general, there's been a very positive reaction for the majority of the cities. I think no city likes to fall down into the bottom. But overall, I think more than anything, people are interested in, in what does make up community spirit, right? So what we've been here is quite innovative and thinking of the different metrics that we'd want to measure. And as far as I know, there aren't any other community spirit indexes. And if people are more interested about reading more, they can also Google community spirit index and it will come up with our Preply page and they can find out more information about the different indices that we use to determine this level of, of community spirit. Right. I should mention again that you didn't measure every city in the world, right? This was 53 cities. In total. So I think within the Canadian context, was it just uh, Toronto and, and Montreal that were included in this? That is correct. Yeah. So yeah, for we Ottawans and, and Winnipeggers yeah. and, and Edmontonians and Calgarians and Vancouverites, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, or maybe that's a question we could ask you as well. Say, so how would you rank the cities of Canada? In oh, wow. Of- I, I'm not allowed to. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot there. That. I was going to say, have you been to Toronto? 
I haven't actually. I okay. have. Um, I've been to Calgary. I thought it was a great city. Yeah, most to- Can- most Canadian cities are. I mean, in general, when that's. I think that's why the Toronto thing was interesting because most Canadian cities fall under the rubric of being like Halifax is a remarkably friendly place. St. John's is a really friendly place. Charlottetown, uh, all on the east coast, and then where I grew up in Montreal is can be friendly. It has a bit of an edge to it at times, but there's a lot of really friendly places in Canada. So it was interesting to see Toronto uh, finish top of the heap. Oh, well, I'm very glad that you that you feel proud of that achievement. I think it's fantastic. So no, I now have it on my bucket list. Next city to go and live in. <laughs> yeah, Montreal or Toronto. I guess we'll be looking forward to next year's uh, Community Spirit Index. Sylvia Johnson, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Sunsets. Who doesn't like a great sunset? I mean, anytime you're somewhere tropical and you get to see those incredible sunsets where it looks like uh, the sun is falling off the edge of a table. It is such an incredible phenomenon. I miss sunsets here often because I'm working or I'm inside and I don't get to see them uh, where I am. But, you know, sunsets are really among the most beautiful fleeting weather phenomenon in a day. We didn't need research to tell us that, right? We already knew that to be true. But when surveying a bunch of people on this to try to figure out what uh, ephemeral phenomenon in nature really bring us happiness and joy. It turns out that sunrises and sunsets tend to be the ones. Now, there are many other things, thunderstorms, rainbows, you name it, but sunrises and sunsets, particularly the former, uh, according to a study published this year by a pair of British researchers, really, really are the ones that, that make us stop and appreciate who we are, what we are. And in fact, in some ways, they make us feel small, which isn't a bad thing. They put everything into perspective, your problems, your your day-to-day stuff. Um, in fact, they figured out that about 100 British people would pay up to, you know, 100 British pounds, you know, about $170 Canadian to see landscapes at dawn or dusk. That's how much they really help us with our mental health. Um so we wanted to find out more about this. How did you come up with that, we thought? How did you, I mean, clearly something like a sunrise or a sunset, we know that we know that they are awe-inspiring. But how did we associate that? What, what could the science tell us about what how that works and what difference they really make? And does it matter whether the sunset is actually real? Is it Does it have to be right in front of us or can we watch a picture of one? Uh, are there ways of replicating it? Um, so we went to find out. Alex Smalley is a PhD fellow at the University of Exeter, who was uh, one of those who did this research, and he joins us now. Alex, thanks for your time tonight. Great to be here. So this is a really, as always, we sort of, you know, comb around for really interesting work that's being done scientifically. How did you come across this idea? What were you looking for? Well, there's such a robust body of work that shows that spending time in natural environments can be good for our physical, but also our psychological health. And we call this area of this field of research environmental psychology. And it's told us a huge amount about how people respond to, say, blue spaces, you know, aquatic environments. It's told us a lot about green spaces, about the way that people respond to different, say, tree-lined streets um, and different elements of our environments like that. But what it didn't tell us very much about was how these sort of fleeting and what we call ephemeral experiences in nature, how they can impact people's emotional outcomes when they spend time in natural environments. Yeah, I I was thinking about that while reading through the work that you had done, because for instance, here where I am, sometimes if you're running through the park, you'll spot an eagle or an owl. And those are those ephemeral fleeting moments where you think, 
it's it's extra special that day, right? But you've looked at a few more common ones, ones that we tend to see more regularly. Uh, what did you discover? So you're exactly right. And actually, there's a decent body of work that shows how people respond to wildlife, to biodiversity. But we were chiefly interested in rhythmic, diurnal changes, the kind of changes that happen every day or actually maybe not every day. So we looked at elements like sunrise, sunset, nightfall. We looked at the ways that stormy skies and rainbows can impact the way that people perceive not just natural environments, but urban environments too. And we looked at three key metrics. We were really interested in people's appraisals of aesthetics, so beauty. We were also really interested in how they experience feelings of awe, which we think is is a really important emotion. And we also tried to capture how much people valued those fleeting ephemeral phenomena. And you came up with some interesting, perhaps not surprising findings. If you've ever been anywhere uh, where, like a Santorini, for instance, where the sunsets are reputed to be beautiful, and you see hundreds of people piling into one area to watch the sun go down, you you, you understand why this is. But uh, sunsets finished sort of top of the mall, did they not? That's right. That's right. So you, like you say, you know, anecdotally, I think we're all familiar with that urge to take of, a, of an incredible sunset, which is often the one we get, right? Not many, not everyone's up for sunrise. But we were trying to trying to understand a bit more about what's going on there. Yeah. And so what we found was that sunrise and sunset emerged as these particularly beautiful times of day to experience both urban and natural landscapes. But that those increases in beauty were also associated with these bumps in awe. And we think awe could be really important because it can help to diminish people's feelings of self-importance, which means that we call this the small self, which means that also their problems can feel diminished. They're more likely to adopt pro-social behavior. Um, And we think these could be really important outcomes from um, spending time in, in natural environments. But what was really excited us was that we saw exactly the same patterns in urban environments. And of course, we often associate urban environments, the city, as places, well, one of the phrases that's used is of disvalue, that people tend to value natural environments and not so much their urban fabric. And actually, we found that elements like sunrise, sunset, rainbows could actually have this really important effect there too. And that's fascinating because I think we often associate seeing beautiful sunsets with being in more pastoral environments or sunrises for that matter. And yet what you're saying is that if you step out on your balcony in the middle of downtown, just about anywhere and watch the sunset, it in some ways can be as as um, as validating or as as awesome as awesome as as it is watching it somewhere more remote. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And one of the reasons we were really interested in sort of trying to attach a very rudimentary and ballpark figure to how much that was worth to people was because in cities particularly we can help to inform planning decisions if we can put a value to these things we can help perhaps to protect those views we can also encourage residents of towns and cities to seek out those experiences which might mean just changing your daily routine a little bit it might be highlighting places where people are more likely to see a sunrise or a sunset if and when they occur maybe highlighting when they're particularly vibrant but of course that's the fantastic thing about these events is that they're free to everyone and whilst they don't occur every day they're pretty common yeah i mean just this week there's been a huge um 
Northern Lights activity in and around far further south than we're used to in Canada and the amount of pictures being shared of it. And this is just another awesome phenomenon, rarer for many than uh, because of light pollution and so on, than something as, as common as a sunrise, but still a reminder of, the, of that small self, which is which is what you've pointed out to this this idea that we are a small part of a much bigger picture and just how uh, mind-altering that can be. Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, I, I kicked myself because we had exactly this, you know, the same ability to see the aurora in the southern UK where I'm based, which right. is incredibly rare. And yes. I missed it because because that 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 part of solar activity wasn't highlighted. And I think you're exactly right that that those kind of, you know, the aurora is almost that archetypal ephemeral phenomena. It's incredibly rare. You have to have such a specific set of circumstances to view it. But, you know, what we're tapping into here, of course, is isn't entirely new you know the sublime movement of art captured these these sort of awe-inspiring moments and it's only really now that I think we're starting to be able to ascribe really demonstrable value to them in a way that can allow us to appreciate them and of course preserve and protect them. Right. And, and the idea of, of urban planning being built around our ability to still witness some of these things is a really interesting way of looking at it as well. Uh, you, you, you did some more looks into sort of sunrises and sunsets and ideal times to see them as well. Is that right? Seeing sunrise and sunset. And we can focus on those elements because they were the, they were the, the, the standouts in our study, but they vary through the year. So I think one of the other things that we are really interested with the outcomes of this study is the way that particularly, say, in urban centres where people are disconnected from natural environments, they're disconnected from the rhythm of nature, the seasonality of nature. Paying attention to um, even just simple things like sunrise and sunset, if you live next to the coast, to the rise and fall of the tide, the changing of tide times, the, the, the lunar cycle, can actually help to connect us to a natural environment in a way that doesn't rely on the kind of structural factors that we might rely on when we talk about or think about, say, things like urban greening, um, you know, which relies on us to plant trees, to to preserve park environments, which are all, all of course, really important um, uh, initiatives. But but this is almost, you know, paying attention to, say, the solar cycle or, or, or understanding that after a after a particularly vibrant storm, there might be a chance to see a rainbow. You know, they're, they're really quick wins. Right take advantage of those opportunities. There were some, I mean, lots of people missed. Don't, I, I was speaking to someone the other day in Madison, Wisconsin, who slept through it because he thought it would be cloudy. So don't, don't be too hard on yourself. I think a lot of people missed the Aurora, but it was, um, there were, there were sort of the odd alert out there talking about increased solar activity and so on. One of the things about your study I found really uh, surprising was that you don't even actually necessarily need to see a sunrise or a sunset or the phenomenon physically sometimes just seeing it on a screen can be enough to lift your mood and that's that's a really core part of the research that we're doing is looking at the way that people respond to virtual representations of nature and the really familiar way that people do that without perhaps even realizing is sitting down to watch natural history documentaries you know here in the UK we have the BBC's planet earth and blue planet series and they bring nature to people at home. And so we're really interested in how we might be able to harness some of the benefits of that for people who can't otherwise get outside, whether they're in clinical sit- settings, whether they're in residential care, because of course not everyone, and I think we all experienced this throughout the pandemic, not everyone has access to natural environments and the kind of wonder that they can instill on a regular basis and when they might need them the most. And actually the way that we conducted this study 
was through digital means, you know, with these with these very carefully calibrated images that we showed to two and a half thousand participants. And that also gives us great confidence in our findings, too. Any advice? I mean, I know that you're, I know this isn't uh, supposed to be advice per se, but any advice to those out there about uh, what the what your findings have taught all the rest of us about what we should be? Doing? I mean, stop and smell the flowers is the most is the one of the oldest terms, right? But it strikes me in, in looking at your research, that's precisely what you're asking people to do to some extent. Absolutely, you know, paying attention, being quite intentional about your time outdoors, whether that's in urban or natural environments, I think is really important. And paying attention to all of the senses, you know, in this study, we very much focus on the ephemerality of, of, of nature-based experiences. But of course, that's not restricted to the visual sense. That very much applies to the way that we sense the world through other ways. And, I'm, you know, we focused a little bit as well on the way that people respond to natural soundscapes and birdsong. And of course, by their definition, they're fleeting, they're ever-changing, they're dynamic. Um, and just being able to tune in I think can really help us switch off. When you finish, I, I don't I don't imagine you weren't already a fan of the outdoors. But when you finished this, did you walk? Did you have you looked at at different phenomenon, ephemeral phenomenon, in a new way? Yeah, I have. You know, it's funny actually the the ability to try and stop and you know to to practice what you preach. Um, I'm still completely arrested by you know a really vibrant sunset but also for me the sort of the the awe and the drama of thunderstorms particularly the the sonic element of of thunderstorms gets me every time yeah that rumble right that that rumble that happens uh alex Smalley, thank you so much for your time thank you thank you 